Hi, this is Danielle from The Jealous Curator, and this is episode 143 of Art for Your Ear. This episode is brought to you by SachiArt.com, the world's largest curated online art gallery offering original work and limited edition prints by independent artists from around the world. And throughout the fall, keep your eyes open for Saatchi's The Other Art Fair in a whole bunch of cities. Chicago is happening next weekend, September 28th through 30th, followed by London and then L.A. in October and finally Brooklyn in November. To find dates, locations, and more, pop over to theotherartfair.com. Now, this episode is also sponsored by Thrive. I know you've heard me talk about Thrive a ton because I happen to be a member. Thrive is a place for female artists to, quote, make art, meet your people, and do the work. And I'm very happy to report that I have done all three. As a member of Thrive, you get to connect with other artists just like you on the Thrive Network, an online community that they've set up where you can ask questions, share resources, and get to know your people. You'll also have first access to the Thrive Mastermind Program intakes, and I'm happy to report that they've just opened up their applications for new members. Head to thriveartstudio.com to learn more and apply to join, join the community. So this episode has been a very long time coming. I've written about her several times, and so many of you have emailed me begging me to have her on. Well, it's happening. Casey Savalia and her insanely detailed embroidered portraits are on the podcast. Did she start out as a painter? Why and how does she do what she does? Also, do her hands hurt? (laughs) I also wanted to know what she binge watches and if she prefers cheesecake over fruit pie. Well, I am thrilled to tell you that I found out all of that and more. Ready? Calling Casey in St. Louis. Hi, Casey. Hi there. This feels very weird because I have seen your handle on Instagram for years, and I've written about you lots of times, and I've, and now we're actually speaking to each other. That's right. It's very exciting. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay, now and here's... I, yeah. I take pride in the fact that I recommended the Queen using the camera, looking through the camera, that I recommended that to you, and now that's part of your work. So I feel like we kind of know each other, even though we haven't (laughs) actually talked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Oh, the queen. (laughs) I love that girl. I don't know know why, but um, you know what's funny? I thought you were going to have an Australian accent. I know. It's gone. It's very sad. Like, if I go to Australia, it is so difficult like, I literally have to make it not come back. And oh, it's really? so easy to fall back into it. Um, but, yeah, I'm a full-on American. Wow. Okay, so, <laughs> see, this is a perfect segue into, but you were born in Australia. I wasn't born in Australia. Oh, so my parents were school teachers and were kind of hippie-ish. And Australia in the 70s was... Um, kind of putting a call out for teachers to come to Australia. So they needed specific teachers, like English teachers. My dad taught um, industrial arts and leatherwork and woodworking. Wow. So they decided to just kind of pack up and move to Australia. And it was, I think it was a deal like if you got over there and got set up and you didn't like it, they would pay your way back or something like that. Wow, um, that's a great so, deal. <laughs> yeah, so they went. I was one. My brother was two. And we lived there until I was 13. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, so not only did I get to grow up in Australia, I grew up in Australia in the 70s, which I think was like even better. And if you're my age and you're Australian, you totally know what that's like. Um, yeah. And what is that like? Is I'm picturing golden sun and running around like wild little creatures. Yeah, just like a lot of freedom. Um, my parents chose not to have a television. So we lived like in the suburbs outside of Sydney. Um, didn't have TV, didn't have video games. Um, and so there was a lot of time that we, my brother and I, you know, had to fill on our own. It's not like today where parents keep their kids really scheduled. Um, and I look back on that time and I think of it fondly because I can definitely see, see connections to how having more of an extended playtime, like I think, you know, I look at my son who's nine mm-hmm. and he still plays imagine- imaginatively outside. Um, and I love that when I see, it's almost like I can see his brain, just like all these things firing within his brain. So I think because we didn't have a TV, 
I was extending that amount of time. So where it might taper off around 9 or 10, like full on almost 13, like I was still playing with dolls. I mean, this is embarrassing, but like I think for my for my like 12-year-old Christmas, I think I asked for like a full life-size baby doll that I could dress up in clothes. Um again, too old to be doing that type of thing. I remember my dad or they had like a granny flat out back. So there was like a living room and a kitchen and then an office. And I would go down there and just play secretary or kind of run my own business. Like just in my own world, like sending invoices, billing people, answering the phone, putting people on hold. Like, and I think of this imaginative world and, and wonder, you know, like I said, how does that make a connection to today? Um, but I do remember kind of a clear time when that stopped. And I was, The Man from Snowy River was a very popular movie mm-hmm. at that time. And I had taken a sawhorse out of my dad's workshop, set it up in the backyard. Again, I'm like probably 11 or 12. And I imagined to put the saddle on. I was riding the ranges with the star from Man from Snowy River. And it's like full on like riding this horse in my own world. And my neighbor at the time, who was probably in her 60s, um, popped her head over and said, oh, you better be careful, love. You might fall off that horse and break a bone. And I just remember, like, melting into this puddle of embarrassment <laughs> that I was way too old to be, you know, playing like this. Um, but, yeah, like I said, I really, I really wonder how that, how that extended play imaginative time because of my environment really impacted becoming an artist and the work that I'm doing today. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, it's, I have to share my horse story. So (laughs) I have, we had a hill in our backyard and, um, I had this toboggan. It was like an orange toboggan, just, just like, um, plastic really, but it had brakes, which I thought was super awesome. So you could, and they were like hand brakes. So you could turn one and you would turn left, turn the other, you know? And so I used to go out tobogganing after dinner. So it'd be dark at, you know, say five o'clock or whatever. Right. And, um, I would pretend and the moonlight would be, you know, and I would pretend that I was riding a horse through the snowy forest <laughs> and I would, you know, back and forth and it wasn't a very big hill. So then I'd have to take my horse back to the top and I was probably that age. And I just yeah. thought that that would be the dreamiest of all dreams to horseback ride in the snowy night. Right, right. Well, that's good. That makes me not. Yeah, there you go. We're both on our pretend horses. It's all good. good. It's all good. Good. Um, (laughs) And so you, you guys moved when you were 13. Did you go back to the States? Did. And they moved to Dallas, Texas. I don't really know why they picked Dallas other than they really wanted a similar climate to Sydney. Mm. Um, And most of our relatives were in like Tennessee and Michigan and Florida. Um, But it was a, a great culture shock to go from Sydney, Australia to Dallas, Texas in 1984, which was the era of Dallas and big hair and makeup and glitz and glam. I mean, it just was so opposite, like where I was coming from. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of culture shock. Yeah. And at an age too, where you're so self-conscious of all of those things. Right. Eighth grade. Yeah. You know, I'm this little Australian girl with Australian accent, no makeup, you know, put my hair in a ponytail, pretty simple. Um, and go to school on the first day and girls have like full on makeup, high heels. Like, yeah, it was different. Very different. Oh my God. So did you, did you um, <laughs> become one of them or did you stay the little Australian girl? I did. I like, I mean, by 10th grade, I had permed hair that exceeded the width of like the frame of a school picture um my my Facebook is private just for like my own you know family and friends but if you look at my profile picture it is yeah full-on permed hair which I no, I was kind of yeah I kind of had pride in that but hopefully I kept a little bit of the Sydney girl inside of me (laughs) well it was the 80s I mean it was yeah I had a gigantic perm too that was my Christmas present every year because my hair was really long so I had to get two perms like like it would cost double because it was so much hair, and right. um, oh yeah, it, and then in the mornings I was just talking about this with a friend. I would get up at five in the morning so that I could then recurl my spiral perm to make sure that it was right. super curly and Perfect. yeah, and moose and the bangs were giant and huge and 
yeah, like that. And if, and if it rained or if you had to, like, if we had PE and we had to swim, right. I would just fake it. Cause I was like, I have fake sickness. Cause I, I'm not getting <laughs> this hair wet. Do you know how much work this was? Right. The eighties. Um, see, so no judgment there again. We're riding okay, our horses. We've got big perms. <laughs> check, check. Um, and then so during all of this time, so you've got obviously an amazing imagination. Um, were you making, were you like a kid that just made stuff all the time? So I would say I was more of a craftsy kid than an artsy kid. Mm-hmm. Um, my, because we didn't live near family, my grandparents would come to visit and they would stay in this granny flat that was in the backyard and they would stay for like six months at a time. Mm. So my grandma loved to do crafts and would get me involved in making Christmas ornaments and that type of thing. Um, My mom did a lot of cross stitch and kind of taught me a little bit of embroidery. And she would have this like every fortnight she would have women over for like tea and they would just do their cross stitch together. And it wasn't like I participated in, in that, but I did that was the environment I grew up in. That was mm-hmm. the normal. And I would kind of flow in and out of their chatter and bring them cups of tea. Um, and so, yeah, definitely interested in more of the craft. Um, into the 80s, I made a lot of um, duck things for the kitchen, you know, distressed <laughs> wooden things, um, lots of things with a glue gun. Did you hodgepodge anything? I did a little hodgepodge, yeah. <laughs> yeah me um, too, me too. I was I was the queen of the glue gun and like puff paint on t-shirts and that type of thing. <gasps> yes. Yeah, that oh was that was my happy place for sure. Me too. Um, I painted on so many shirts. So yeah. and pajamas and what like whatever I could get. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I think I've always wanted to because I love that to my core. I've always been trying to find a way to integrate that into my artwork. And I literally went through like trying to put puff paint on an oil painting. Didn't really work. Um, <laughs> just borrowing from like supplies at the craft store to, yeah, to integrate. I love that. So, did you yeah. go to art school? I did. So I went to undergrad um, for just kind of like a BFA in fine art, but I kind of concentrated in painting. And then I took a two-year break, and then I went to grad school at Washington University here in St. Louis. Um, And also, um, my major was in painting. Okay, so So, when you were there, were you trying to, like, were you bringing craft stuff into your work then, or were you just doing oil painting, or what was it, what was going on? So in undergrad, I think that's where I was trying to incorporate the craft more. And then when I got to grad school, I was really more trying to emulate the artists that I loved, like Lucian Freud, Elizabeth Payton. I was trying to do something different. Um, And when I went to grad school, they don't really give you a piece of paper that says, don't lug in your old stuff. Like, don't come with stuff. And I wish they had said, come with nothing and start fresh. So I kind of wasted a little bit of time kind of lugging in the old, you know, greatest hits or whatever. Right. Um, and then I was just really ready for change. And so again, just kind of emulating the artists that I love, trying to find my own voice, but then also submerging myself into classes where I knew I was lacking, like drawing. I took a ton of drawing classes in, in grad school. Um, yeah, and just trying to expand my vocabulary that I could then pull from to make mm-hmm. art at the end of grad school and afterwards. That's smart. Yeah, because, you know, you know the, the instinct might be to stay away from the stuff that you don't feel as comfortable about. But that's so good to force yourself, you know, to, right. to get those skills. Right. That's crazy because your work is so realistic now. That Yeah, I, I, I feel like I... After grad school, I kind of maybe continued in the same vein. I was um, painting on panels, really loose oil paint. Um, oh, I completely lost my thought. What did you say? What were you, What did you just say? Um, about how realistic that your work is. It's oh, right, right, right. Yeah. And so I was. I realized I needed to strip it of all the gimmicks and mm. strip down to the bare essentials. And so that's kind of what got me to basically the work that I'm doing now. Well, so when did the first stitch show up? So the first stitch happened, uh, I was pregnant with my daughter, who's um, 17 years old. 
And um, I had given, I was ready to change. I wanted to change. I was pregnant and I couldn't be around all the turpentine and varnish and the things that I had been using. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wasn't sad because I was just ready for something different. So um, I gave myself a summer to experiment and came up with nothing at the end of that (laughs) summer. Um, And, but I don't think it was a waste. I kind of like crossed off all the stuff that I wanted to try and, and none of it worked. I was painting on photos, I was collaging. And in the back of my mind was this piece that I'd made as a kid, which was just a simple embroidery kit of a sheep station. And my mom had showed me how to do the basic stitches. And when I had, um, when I did the sheep, they were made out of French knots and wool. And I remember doing them and I remember kind of standing back and thinking, like in my little 13-year-old brain, this just blew my brain that I could use wool to create a sheep but it looked like sheep's wool. Like that. Yeah. And I think everyone has an experience like that. Like whether you're an artist or not, every person has a piece that you made as a kid that either you don't have anymore, but you remember it or your mom has it in an attic or you have it framed still in your house that gave you that feeling in the pit of your stomach. Like this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was that piece. I had like, two other specific pieces that kind of always float in my brain from my childhood. But this piece specifically was always in my brain. My mom still had it. So I asked her to send it to me and I thought, what if I stitched a portrait? And so I specifically chose cruel wool. I liked the fact that it was kind of sounded kind of old fashioned and dorky. Um, but it definitely referenced this piece I'd made as a kid. And it was just a starting point. I didn't know how to do embroidery. I didn't know where it was going to go, but I wanted to treat it just as a medium, like, like you would draw with a pencil on paper, just take my background in drawing and painting and use this medium and kind of see where it went. And how long ago was this? That was 17 years ago. Oh yeah. When you're pregnant. So you were still, you were pregnant when you did that? Yes. And did you have that pit of the stomach moment when you finished it? I, I did. I did a small one and I realized kind of that feeling you have where, um, and I think every artist has this, you're so excited because you know it has potential, but you're scared to death because it could go so wrong. Um, And so my first one, the whole thing was stitched, even the background, it was tiny. I realized, okay, it needs to be bigger. The scale needs to be bigger. It gives me more room to work within the portrait and the background needs to be eliminated and just be painted. Um, It was just too much wool and it just, just felt like it couldn't breathe. Mm. Um, so it was just about tweaking it. I wasn't ready to make the financial investment and buy, you know, 480 colors of wool. Right. So I just went, took my photo to the, the needlepoint needlepoint store and just kind of picked the colors I thought I would need and made a bigger portrait. And again, that piece wasn't perfect, but I knew, like, it has potential. And the thing that I love about it is I'm 17 years in and I still think the medium has potential, um, that I'm not done with it. And it's kind of taken me down different paths that are still really exciting. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. is so cool. And so when you had your daughter then, um, were you still playing around with it? Like when she napped and stuff, or did you take a little hiatus from it? Or what happened? It was perfect. I mean, I couldn't have planned it any better. It was perfect with having kids because it's the type of thing where you can jump in and out of it. And I no longer needed like a four-hour period, which is impossible with a newborn, (laughs) to have a four-hour studio session. Um, So I just worked slowly at it. And I I did, I think because I was so excited, I wanted more time in the studio. But I just kind of took what came. Um, And I think at that point, I was making like, two per year Mm -hmm. um the medium was new so I I wasn't quite sure how to use it and then over the years um you know I've mastered the technique and that I know ahead of time what it can do and so that same size portrait I can do in six weeks of you know what was taking me six months right yeah Yeah, of course yeah you've honed your skills and so now do you own 480 um colors of thread now I do now I do yeah (laughs) so then I was like I'll invest in all the colors. So. Wow, that is yeah. just so cool. I know when I first saw your work, I, I mean, I'm sure people say this all the time, I thought it was a painting Yeah. with just soft little brush strokes. And then you're like, whoa, 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 hang on a second here. This is insane. Um, and so, okay, um, 
so you're at home. So how many kids do you have? So I have four kids that now range in ages from nine to 17. Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. So in this time, you've got four kids. You're making the work when you can. Um, Were you starting to show it? I don't think I showed it until I was, I was just pregnant with my fourth. So the whole time I was making the the internet was just starting. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started sending, you know, my work to some blogs and like, here's what I'm making type of thing. Um, Yeah, but I, I didn't actually have my first solo show in New York until I I think my baby was six weeks old. Oh, my God. And how did that come about? How did that show come about? So, like I said, the Internet had just started, and I was following a couple couple galleries, and there was one gallery in New York that represented a guy who knitted superhero outfits. Oh, my God, that's awesome. And Yeah, and and they also represented painters, and so I just thought, oh, I think they might like my stuff. They might consider it painting as well. And so I corresponded with them and sent them a couple images and they liked the work but were also interested in how many pieces I was making per year and then I had to say well last year I had a baby and I only made one so I wasn't a desirable artist to add to their roster um, because my output wasn't that great Um, and so the next year I made two portraits that I was pretty proud of and so I emailed them as if we had been in correspondence but we hadn't (laughs) and um and said, oh, here's two pieces that I just made, and send them some details. They were just about to go to Pulse, New York, um, and it was the height of the art market. And so they took those two pieces, and that's how our relationship started. Um, and we didn't know the art market was going to crash, so that, that fair was very successful for me. And then the next year, they were like, let's plan your solo. I had a backlog of work that had never been shown, and so I kind of added a couple pieces to that for my first solo but again the art market crashed and it was just crickets yeah so but that's how I started that's so good that's hilarious but I love that like hi right (laughs) (laughs) just following up on our last email and so how big were those two pieces that you sent that you emailed them about um those were similar to what I just finished doing um which is just under life size okay okay um, wow, beautiful. Yeah. Um, and so you start, well, okay, the art market crashes. How did, did you end up getting in with other galleries or how did, how did things start well, turning? The one reason I actually look back on that and love the way that it happened the way it happened was I feel like there's this pressure that you have to make it as soon as you get out of grad school or as soon as you graduate and before you have kids. And for me, it happened the opposite way. I just slowly started when I had just had all my kids. Mm-hmm. And so, and I do love, I mean, it's nice to sell, but it also took all the pressure off of me to just, okay, nothing sold. There's no pressure. Just get back in the studio and continue making. And you can also enjoy being a mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Yeah. Did you um, ever feel like, because I, I know some people, and I am one of those people, I was pretty prolific when Charlie was a baby, just because I, mm-hmm. I needed a creative outlet, you know, and I was making and making, but again, not showing or anything, um, which was super exciting, and I would feel amazing, and then as they started stacking up in the studio and gathering dust, I sort of had that, like, oh my God, what is the point? Mm-hmm. Did you ever have that? I think I just believed in the work so much, yeah. and believed I was onto something and I think I mean that's why we all keep going as artists is because we have the confidence that you need to make the work yeah you're saying something and whether someone sees it yet you know is irrelevant because you you have to make the work yeah um and so I did you know very few kind of local opportunities but there was a couple where I I showed the work um but I think I was just patient. I think yeah. I I always wanted to be a mom and an artist. And so I was enjoying being a mom. And I was teaching myself not to feel guilty that I wasn't in the studio six hours a day like I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've said this on other podcasts and chats, but I really feel like it's not fair that artists can set up parameters for their work. Like, I'm only going to work in this size. I'm only going to use this color. I'm only going to 
um, whatever your parameters are. And everyone looks at that like, oh, wow, yeah, that's so valid. That's, that's great you do that. But if someone says, well, I only make art when my kid's napping, it's a little bit like, weren't, weren't. You know, that's, yeah. not as, that's not as valid as another artist setting up their parameters. Right. But that's, that's exactly what it is. It's like, this is the only time you can make work. So I had to teach myself um, the value of that time and to not, you know, be sad that I wasn't in there um, more than I wanted to, but also um, validate time that I was in the car driving my kids places. I mean, little babies are asleep in the car and your mind is active thinking about the next thing you want to make in your studio. Um, And I started to validate that time just as much as the time that I was actually in there sewing in my studio. Oh, I love that. I wish I had met you at the park. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been very, very handy. Right. Yeah, because I would I would go through these sort of ebbs and flows of like I can't not make things, so I right. totally get that. So I was just constantly making, and yeah, like I, I would use any moment that that I did have that quiet time in my brain if he was sleeping in the car, or whatever, to think about stuff. And <clears throat> but that's so smart of you, just to I don't know, I wasn't patient enough, or uh, I don't know, and I mean th- that's what that's where the jealous curator came from, right? Like that's where that right. was born. So, I mean, in the end, it all worked out. <laughs> right. Um, but that was the catalyst for starting. It was that frustration and that thinking, oh gosh, has life passed me by? And um, I just love your perspective. Yeah. And I think everyone who is a mom and an artist, or you're a dad and you're an artist, um, you, when you hear that, advice like we're all craving that but when we hear it we're just like oh yes yeah you know it's a community and it needs it needs that type of support like I recently was on a talk um with uh women artists who are moms and that's what the whole talk was about and so we each kind of shared our perspective um and they were all local artists here in St. Louis and so just to prepare before I went to the talk I thought I'm gonna make a list of um everything that I think the job of a mom is. And then I'm going to make a separate list of everything I think an artist is, and then I'm going to compare those two lists. So I started my mom list, and it was everything that an artist is. Like, it was like, um, you know, when we have stains on our clothes from our babies, it's a badge of honor. Um, Well, artists have paint on their clothes. There's, you know, we, we raise kids and, and sometimes we are never thanked for our job of being mom. An artist is the same thing. We make art piece after art piece and no art piece ever says, gee, thank you for making me. You know, there's, just, there's so many parallels between being an artist and a mom. We, you know, we have late nights, we have no sleep, we are, you know, not eating the right food. Every single one um, parallel to being an artist. And so it, it made me think of my job as being an artist in a different light, too. Um, oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I love that. See, had we been sitting on a bench while our kids were on the playground. Right. You could have just, coffee. yeah, drinking our coffee, <laughs> trying to stay awake. You could have told me all of this. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So back to, um, and I hope, I hope everybody that's listening who has a baby or is about to have a baby is like, oh, thank God. Thank you for this. Um, well, and actually, I know your new book's about to come out, but I actually thought that needs to be your next. If you don't have an idea, you can take my idea in that I think it would be great to do a book like, you know, mothers who are artists, fathers who are artists, caretakers who are artists. Yes. So you can run with that. I'll give you that one for free. Okay, thanks. <laughs> you can invoice <laughs> if you're stuck, me. If you're stuck on ideas. Yeah, that is a very good idea. I actually have an idea for a kid's book. Oh, that's cool. But anyway, but yeah, I um, and somebody else suggested doing a book about um, being um, a parent and an artist. And um, right. it's so funny because I've, I've recorded a few of the episodes for the new season of the podcast. And this has come up in every single one so far. Yeah. So there's something in the air. It's important. Yeah, I think it's important. And I remember I listened to your interview with Amy Sherald, and she was talking about, you know, being a caretaker kind of postponed her art career. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's absolutely in the same category as being a parent. So Yeah, caring for anybody. And and you know what you said a few minutes ago about, um, I mean, I think intellectually we all know 
it's hard and whatever. But when you hear other people validate that, you're just like, oh, like, I, I think all humans want that, right? You want to be understood. And um, so, yeah, it's just so nice that it's become a conversation as opposed to something that you're not supposed to talk about because, it, you know, it's embarrassing exactly. to be a mother and an artist and it, right. means it invalidates your art in some way because you gave birth. Like, I, I don't right. get that. But anyway, I think right. the more the conversation happens, the better it is. Well, and I think the part of the conversation that doesn't happen is children don't take away from your work. They actually inform your work. And hands down, I wouldn't be doing this body of work had it not been for getting pregnant, having to create a non-toxic studio. And then I stumbled into this work, which was perfect for being a mom and having kids. Yeah, so. totally. And I think that's the same with, um, I always, you know, if I, if I ever win some giant award, I'll thank Charlie for, you know, <laughs> being the right. catalyst that started Jealous Curator because I was a, I was working 80 hours a week in, in the advertising world and I never gave my brain time to make my own art or to even think about Jealous Curator or any of that right. stuff. And because right. I stayed home with him for five years, I had this moment to go, well, I don't want to go back to advertising. What do I want to do? What do I care about? All this stuff. Um, you know, while we were at the park and while he was pretending to fish off the back of the couch and right. you know, all these different things. And so I attribute that time to giving me the time and space to figure out what was next. And I love what came next. Right. So yay, Charlie. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to know when you flipped over one of your pieces and decided to hang it up like that. I had I'd never noticed the back before. So the back of my image is not your typical neat embroiderer. It's very crazy, random. I stretch the thread from here to there because I'm lazy and I don't want to cut it off. Um, and so I didn't notice it at first. I never documented it. And then I slowly was like, oh, wow, this backside is very interesting. Um, the reason it interested me is because I love realism so much that I could never think of an abstracted figurative portrait on my own. Like it would just look completely hokey. Um, but this was a byproduct of something I was making. And, and I was just like, how could I have never noticed this, you know, that it was on the backside. So I have to kind of give a shout out to, I don't know if you've heard of Jenny Hart at Sublime yes. City. Yes. Okay, yes. She's amazing. So she had a blog originally, it doesn't exist anymore. I think it's still out there. It's called Embroidery as Art. Mm -hmm. And so kind of to promote myself and get my stuff out there, I sent her some images of a recent portrait that I'd finished of my son. And I sent her the whole portrait. I sent her like some details. I'd done this like plaid shirt that I was super proud of. And then I sent her the back image, which I'd recently started documenting the back. And she loved it. But the only image she chose to post was the back image <laughs> and, and used this term verso, which I had never heard of before. So I kind of credit her with not only introducing me to that word and what it means that, that it's the back of an artwork, but the fact that she gave voice to this was the only image she posted really opened my eyes to, to the potential of this other side. Hmm. Um, and so I slowly started documenting this other side. Um, I had been stitching for maybe 10 or 11 years. And I was starting to miss paint, but I was also afraid to go back to paint because I hadn't done it in such a long time. Mm. And so um, when, I, when I originally started to bring paint back into my studio, I painted a portrait. It was horrible. It was just because I was starting to compare an embroidered portrait next to this painted portrait. So I was kind of bummed, like, oh, I, was, I wanted to bring painting back in. I don't think it's going to work. And then it was just like these worlds collided at the same time. She posted this image. I had started the pieces that were still in my studio. I had started documenting this back image and just thought, this is it. It's the perfect way to not only document this other side, not only speak to this other side, because as humans, we have two sides, the side that everyone sees and then the side that no one sees. Um, and so it allowed me to kind of take my work is primarily about family, but it allowed me to speak more universally about the human experience by using this other side because it's the side that um, also we don't understand as much we don't get to see it but it holds so much um, mm -hmm. and I also have always wanted my work to uh, um, 
like to relate to a greater spectrum of people. And I think like uh, some people just aren't into figurative work, so they might just miss my work. But this back image is something, it's actually a language that's more familiar to our eyes in this day and age. And so it appeals to more people. Um, even like when I post stuff on Instagram, hands down that side always gets the best response. And there's just wow. something about it that I think people can relate to. Like it's very distorted and weird and abstract, but um, I think our eyes are used to seeing that more abstracted image. And it's in, in like I said, in, in a lot of ways, it's more universal and more approachable. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I love how it's just so, like, the front side is just, true, like you said, so perfect. And in especially in the world of social media, it's what you put out into the world, right? Is this perfect version of you. And then I love that the right. back is just, like, a mess and chaotic and lazy, like, you know, that you didn't cut off the thread, that you just, and I just, like, that's the reality right. of what's going right. on behind the scenes, you know? And right. um, I just, even, like, I, I don't even, this is probably not your intention, but things like mental illness, right? Like you look perfectly fine from the front, but then there's all this stuff happening in your mind that people don't see. And, you know, I don't know. I just right. think it's so interesting and it just brings up lots of conversations. And um, so I know that you're, you're painting those versos, right? Yes. Not did all did of that them. just start? No, I started that, I think maybe like about four years ago. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, well, now I feel like I need to go back because I'm wondering if some of those ones that I thought were stitched versus were actually painted. Yeah, I don't know. I think I've been on this quest where I want my embroideries to look like paintings. And then when I started the paintings, I wanted them to look like their embroideries. <laughs> so, you know, super large scale. Um, I started out with gouache just to kind of see if it was something I wanted to commit to. And then um, when I had my first museum solo here in St. Louis at the Contemporary Art Museum, it was like, okay, this is my time. I'm going to take it as big as I can in my studio and and see how these images, um, being at that scale, can stand up next to these more intimate, detailed embroideries. Oh, okay. So, and I, I feel like I'm still new to the paintings. Like, I think I've only done five or six of the large paintings um, and just a couple gouaches. So Okay, and so are I, the large paintings oil again? They are acrylic. Oh, so acrylic. all my backgrounds on the embroideries are acrylic, so I used acrylic just because I felt like I hadn't painted in so long, but that's just because I hadn't used oil, and I realized I used this um, heavy body golden acrylic paint, which is like frosting. It's really thick I and know, luscious. I love that. Yeah, I love it rubbery like you can bend it and it won't crack and so I realized oh I'm used to using this and layering it up in my backgrounds so I should just go with that and there's things that I love and don't love about it like you know your colors dry darker they look kind of chalky um so I'm kind of tweaking what I love about the painting um and taking out what I don't like Mm -hmm. um have you ever put like um like a gloss medium in with it I did. Um, no, did that not help? While, not while I was doing it, but um, in the last couple, I finished it with a um, satin uh, glaze over the top. And that definitely did help it to, you know, pop the colors and, and help it to be a little richer. Mm-hmm. I've been yeah. putting it right in with my paint because mm-hmm. um, I was using the heavy body too. And I, that's, I felt the same way. It was like just a bit flat or something when it wasn't dried and so I put some gel gloss medium in it and that seemed to help and then I've been spraying it afterwards with like a varnish but that's just because I have collage bits in there that I have to protect but right um and so when you hang when you hang a show will you put some like forward-facing portraits some versos of the thread and then the paintings so this last show I had in New York, uh, it was just all large-scale embroideries. Okay. Um, but the time before that, I had some gouaches, some uh, large verso paintings, and then some small, some large embroidery. It was really a mixture of a bunch of things. Um, and then I had one one of the embroideries on a pedestal so people could see it in the round and see the front and the oh, back. okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, when you do hang the verso thread ones, how do you hang that? Because... The stretchers on the other side. Well, my husband, who is my, he's my patron. He's my framer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
husband. Um, so it took a lot of math and trying to figure out, but we've um, devised a way to stretch the piece and then put it in a double-sided frame ah. um, so that the piece can be viewed all the way around. Um, and then I have shown a piece where I actually stretched it in reverse. So the back image is what you saw, and then when you went around back, you could see the Okay. The Thank you. So, this is what I wonder when I look on Instagram. I'm like, how is yeah. that? Like, like, you know, I love the work, but then I get into the, how did she do that? So now I yeah, know. Yeah, a good thing. I mean, I think it would be cool to have them all off and on pedestals. Um, you know, maybe down the road I would do something like that. But it does create, because it's very interesting to see the back. You know, when you come into the gallery, you kind of, if you don't know my work, you might think they're paintings. Yeah. And then to see the back makes you realize this is something other. Um, but at the same time, it creates this friction because they're not all on pedestals. Then you really want to see the back of these images. So people are taking them down and flipping them over. Yeah. Well, sometimes my dealer, you know, if there's people curious, he will take them off and and show you. Um, but yeah, it's just, it is intriguing to see the other side. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's funny, like what you said at the very beginning that, you know, you've been doing this now for 17 years and you still see so much potential. Right. You know, to evolve and to keep pushing. And like, obviously yeah. you are, you know, like, uh, you know, all of these neat little, almost accidental aha moments that happen along the way, grabbing them and going with it. Right. And I think like down the road, well, I'm working on a piece right now that is five by seven feet. It's a verso what? image and it's going to be, now it's going to be part painted and then part sewn. So I, what I'm trying to do is just get back to these verso images because I've been sewing embroidered, realistic embroidered portraits for like over a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And I just want to submerge myself into the doing without, you know, the pressure of like, does this look like their nose? Does it look like their eye? Right. Um, because I know these people. But Yeah, they're not made out I, people. Right. Yeah. Um, so this piece that I'm doing now, what I would love to do is show it with the embroidery so people think it's a large sewn piece and like, well, if I turn that large piece around, would it be a realistic sewn portrait on the other side? Um, right. So I just want to play with that tension. Yeah, that sounds so cool. And five by seven, my God. So how long, like, what's your guess of, like, how long that's going to take? Well, I haven't started. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm starting this week, actually. Um, so parts of it will be painted. So yeah. I'm kind of taking the best of what I love about painting, which was a method of painting with um, vinyl stencils. And so I will paint all the sections that I want to. And then phase two will be um, sewing it with wool. So I'm having to invest in a thicker wool to work, you know, quicker um, at that scale. So I'm thinking maybe six months on this piece. Wow. Um, but that might be wishful thinking. I don't know till I get into it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. And so now you do have six hours a day because kids are all in school. Right, right. And so what do they think of you being an artist? Are any of them artsy? They're each um, artsy in their own right. So my uh, nine-year-old has his own studio and loves to draw. Wow. Uh, spends a lot of time drawing. Um, the, my next son loves to do um, animation and does a lot of drawing on his iPad. Um, my third son loves uh, wants to be a film director someday. So... When he's when I when I take away all the screens, um, he uh, goes straight to sculpting, um, making movies, writing screenplays, and then my daughter is very much into does a lot of drawing and painting and mixed media type wow, of work. So that's... yeah, it's we're not a sporty family, um, and it's great to see my husband has a great love of the arts, and it's great to see that passed on to them. And you know, they flow in and out of my studio, give me advice. And they're all, it's, it's amazing that they are spot on. The <laughs> comments that they make are either exactly what I'm thinking or what I need to hear, which is interesting. Yeah, that's handy. So, yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. When um, Charlie was about five, I was doing all of these um, collages with vintage um, Playboy books. Uh -huh. And uh, <laughs> so there was naked ladies all cut out all over our dining room table. He was about five, and he just comes in, looks around, and he goes, Mommy, 
you make weird art and just <laughs> turned around and walked out. And then when he was about six, those a bunch of those pieces were hanging in our hallway, uh, in our main hallway by our bathroom. And he was starting to have friends come over after school and stuff. And he's like, um, could you maybe move those? <laughs> right. And I was like, y- you bet, buddy. I, I actually moved them upstairs. And because uh, my mom is an artist and that we had, you know, in the 70s. And so there's like all these like nude paintings and drawings all over our house. And I just remember being mortified. Right. When friends came over. And so, you know, Greg's, my husband's first instinct was like, well, no, you know, this is your mom's art and this is our house. So we're going to leave it here. And I was like, no, no, it's fine. I, I remember right. being mortified. Anyway, he's thrilled now that I've moved on to Queen Elizabeth and that nobody is naked anymore. So everybody's happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I heard a, I heard a lecture with John Curran and he said the same thing. He was like, you know, I'm just making my work. My kids are coming in and out of my studio. And that at a certain age, it just change where he said I found myself kind of turning my paintings around before they came into the studio yeah and then he just realized yeah it's it's time to kind of shift my work a little bit so that my kids can actually look at it yeah so yeah I know it was funny and um again like you said that kids kind of inform your work right right otherwise who knows you know I would have kept going on that path probably who knows um all the naked people um okay so You've got, what is coming up next? Like, is, is that show in New York? That's all done. That's all done. Um, and so right now I have nothing on the agenda and I'm relishing in it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to show a piece at Expo Chicago at the end of the month with um, William Sherburn Gallery. And then I will show recent work um, at Art Miami with oh, nice. um, William. Yeah, with William Sherburn as well. Um, but... Yeah, I'm just relishing that, like, I'm purposely, like, not keeping on the calendar. I think artists, we have gotten in this trained mode of making work for art fairs. Um, And you kind of budget your calendar that way. Like, okay, Miami's coming up. I need to make a couple things for that. And this was the first year where my primary gallery in New York uh, isn't going to Miami and kind of did a survey amongst their artists, you know, do you do you mind if we don't go this year? And I think we were all like, yes, we don't mind. Like (laughs) I just needed the freedom to experiment. There's a lot of things in the back of my mind that I'd wanted to try. And when you're on this deadline, like, you know, could I pump out another embroidery for Miami? Yeah, I could, but I don't want to. I want to. You've got a new, yeah, you've got a new experiment you want to try. Yeah. I want to make mistakes. I want to like, you know, at the end of the day, look back and say like, Oh, that's awful. <laughs> like, you know, why why did I waste no, that's actually what I want. Um so Yeah, that's you have yeah. to do that. Like that's how you become better. That's how you, you know, still have a practice after all these years is by pushing right. yourself and making awful things. And you know, I teach lots of workshops where it's especially even to kids, like nobody wants to make anything awful. Right. You know, it's like you want everything that comes off of your fingertips to be a masterpiece. And that is so, well, unrealistic. And also, like, you're just going to be upset, <laughs> you know. Right. And I think the mistakes and the terrible stuff is where the magic happens. And as long as you don't let it make you stop, you know, as long as you can appreciate the awfulness and then get back in there. Right. And I think when you're the most frustrated and you're like, this is, like, really terrible – it actually means you're almost there. You are just about to turn the corner if you are at that place. Because, like I said, you'll discover something um, in your studio and you, you have that thing in the pit of your stomach where you are petrified and totally excited at yeah. the same time. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I, I made something in my studio the other day and my daughter, my, my husband walked in first and he was like, oh, good Lord, what is that? <laughs> and I was just like, just nothing, go away, you know. And then my daughter walked in and was like, oh, Mom, no, no. <laughs> and I was like, I am onto something. I am onto something. They just are not drinking the Kool-Aid yet. <laughs> Maybe I'll just flip so. this around and hang it. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's a really, a really good feeling. So do you actually, like, as you were saying that, I was picturing, you know, making awful things, but do you ever take a break or do you just do you treat it like a job and just go to your studio six hours a day I I do treat it like a job um and 
but deadlines are a great motivator to mm-hmm. really make me buckle down. Um, but after this last show, I'd been stitching for over a year and a half, and I was done. Like, yeah. I towards the end, I was stitching, like, 10 and 11-hour days. Like, while they're at <sighs> school, then do dinner, you know, help them with homework, <clears throat> and then straight back up there for a couple more hours. Um, and so I told my husband, I was like, I'm taking an art maternity leave, like, the whole <laughs> month of May. And then it morphed into two months, then it morphed into three months. And now I'm in this stage, like I am actually back in the studio and I'm ready to work. But I said to my husband, you know, like because I didn't have anything on the go and ready to jump into, I'm having to restock my wool, restock all my paint, um, get everything ready to make the piece. I mean, I'm getting proofs back from the photographer to make sure the color's right for the photos that I work from. Um, and I said, it's kind of like, you know, when we fly to Australia, that's like a 17 and a half hour flight from Dallas to Sydney. But the hard part is like, does everyone have winter clothes? Who needs socks? Okay, my <laughs> daughter has a coat, but my son does And that's the, that's where I feel like I am in. Like, I'm so ready to get on that flight. And like this piece that I'm committing to, like I said, realistically, it could take me six plus months. And to some people, that is that it just makes you want to not do it. But for me, it's like, I love that because every day I know what I'm going to do. Right. And it's there and it's waiting for me. But yeah, I've been, I've been packing for a really long time. <laughs> That's good. Now you Getting can just, the studio ready. Yeah, now you can just enjoy the flight. Um, exactly. But do you, um, do your hands ever get sore? You know, I'm, I'm more worried that they will than they actually do. So I did a little bit of research on, um, you know, people are getting like carpal tunnel just from using their cell phones. So as an artist, I try not to use, hold like my phone in the way that normal people hold it and scroll with their thumb. Um, and then when I was sewing that much, I had exercise balls that I just keep in the car or in my kitchen. Or So when I'm driving, well, not when I'm driving, but like when I'm sitting in a stoplight or sitting in the carpool line, I kind of use those exercise balls. So I'm strengthening the other muscles in my fingers as well as the muscles that are getting overused, kind of holding a needle in that pinched position. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I get. Yeah, I'm more nervous that I I am gonna hurt my hand, but so far I haven't. And I okay. think that's knock on some wood. Yeah, I, I just kind of go back and forth between the painting and the sewing, and right. that maybe that helps. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I have I have quite bad arthritis in my hands, so when you said stitching for 10 to 12 hours, like I, my hands just started to ache as you were talking, because I was like, oh my God, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Because I used to embroider onto my um, um, mixed media pieces a few years ago, and I can't, I can't do it anymore. It just yeah. hurts too much, and so maybe that's my other like amazing fascination with your work is just that you know, the awe of it, because I can't do that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, okay, good. You're taking care of yourself. You've got your exercise yeah. balls. I feel better. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so now, are you ready for the not-so-speedy speed round? I am ready. Okay. <laughs> I am ready. <laughs> cheesecake or a fruit pie? Mm, cheesecake. Okay. What, what kind of thing drizzled on it? Are you like a chocolate lady, a strawberry? It would be chocolate cheesecake with chocolate drizzle on it oh my god that sounds good. Sure. there's a, a little shop in our town that has um you can get chocolate cheesecake with either chocolate drizzle or caramel drizzle or a combo yeah no caramel just chocolate okay okay great um do you binge watch anything and if so what great british baking show yes i love it it is just <laughs> it is the most perfect show and i love it um, I started watching the show Making It. Oh, yeah. Right. I didn't love it as much. And, and the reason is I feel like they're trying to entertain the American audience with all the graphics of like, you know, there'll be like graphics of hands closing and scissors cutting like in between the segments. And I'm like, the British baking show, they just let it be. They just let, you know, the duck be out in the field and they'll pan around. the. F- I'm like, it's just quiet and... Yeah, our whole family loves it, and I usually announce, like, everyone go plug up your screens, and they're like, what are we going to do? And I'm like, well, the Great British Baking Show's on, <laughs> and so everyone kind of, you know, migrates in here, and um, yeah, that would be my favorite, and The Office, probably. It's a good studio staple. British or American Office? 
Both. Yeah. Both. I actually both. didn't like the American version, and then my daughter watched it all the way through. And I was like, eh, it's not as good. It doesn't compare to the British one. And she said, Mom, just do it. So I committed, and I watched the whole thing, and actually it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I know. It was hard because we watched the British one first. So, of course, you love, you know, right. Ricky Gervais. And, like, it's just so good that when the American one, and especially the first season of the American one, was basically just copying the episodes. Right, right. You know, and then, but once Steve Carell, like, found his Michael, right, know, then it got so, so good. We, we watched that with Charlie, too, and he loved it. And, yeah, yeah, the great British baking, you know, Greg and I watch it every day at lunch. We'll just watch, like, you know, the technical challenge and then get back to work. And then we watch the showstopper next day at right. lunch. So it takes forever to watch them, which is great. And um, I just love <laughs> how nice everybody is. They don't cast, like, the mean one. Like, they're all just so nice. And it's all so that they can win, like, a pie plate. Right. It's the most perfect show. Like, all the way around. Like, every age demographic is represented. Like, they're crying because their cake flopped. Like, it's just, it is perfection in television. Yeah, It's so relaxing. It's just like... Yeah, your face just kind of relaxes when you're watching it, and then you're like, oh, look at that lovely biscuit. Like, I, I don't right. oh, Yeah. And then I Perfect. love watching Mary Berry eat things. She looks like a little squirrel. Yeah, and then her wording is like, this is scrummy. And scrummy, then like, all yeah. my kids, you know, we don't say that, so they're like, they think that's hilarious. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I know. Now things are scrummy at dinner time. I love it. <laughs> um, okay, what was your first summer job? My parents owned a various businesses, but they had a, a gift shop. So I worked there, sold cards, balloons, gift wrapped people's presents. Um, and then in that Australia? One, no, 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 in Texas. Oh, okay. And then um, they also had a tea room. So I kind of worked in the back of the house and was kind of like a sous chef to the chef and helped him. Oh, um, that's Yeah, nice. those were my, my first jobs. And then my first art job straight out of college was um, I worked at a mural company in Dallas, and we painted murals for various businesses, but our, our main uh, client was Boston Market. I don't know if you guys have oh, that yeah, in Canada. Yeah. No, yeah. I know so, that, yeah. Yeah, so all of their uh, stores had these murals, and so if you've been to a Boston Market in the late 90s, you've seen my, <laughs> my artwork. So. Wow, that's crazy. Did you yeah. enjoy it? I loved it. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of very, very similar to what I do now. Kind of the same thing every day, very kind of quiet, and you're just in painting these black lines. Um, but the company did not have OSHA approved ventilation. Oh. And so, yeah, I could only do it for a year and a half. And I was like, I can't breathe. Like, and they weren't getting that ventilated. So, yeah, sadly, I had to leave that um, job. Oh, dear. Yeah. Good call. But it was fun. Yeah. I worked for a mural company too, and I was terrible at it because I was, it was right after I'd graduated from art school when I had been told you should never paint again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then I got a job painting murals and all I could hear was you should never paint again. You should never paint again. I was so insecure. Uh-huh. I was so worried that everything I was doing was wrong. You know, and if a passerby made a comment, I was like, Oh no. I, oh my God. I was just like this poor little ball of insecurity on a ladder yeah it but was, now you're doing murals again which is, I know cool that was crazy that, I, I did have a moment the, my very first morning when I got to my first wall I screwed around for I'm gonna say a good hour and a half I drank my coffee I I ate a muffin I <laughs> laid out all my paints I walked around I was so scared to make the first yeah, dot in, it would be intimidating I think that scale it's kind of like you know, when you see those people, like, plein air people in Europe painting, and, of course, everyone wants to walk by and see what they're doing, but, like, a mural wall, like, that's, yeah. like... Well, yeah, they just, crazy. like, you know, and trying to make my work, I mean, I'd, I'd been shooting off my mouth on the podcast saying how cool, you know, I'd love to try making my work big on a wall, and Vancouver Mural Festival was like, okay, and then I was like, oh, no, and so I had this plan, I made, I got these circular sponges made so I could, so I didn't have to hand paint all the perfect circles, because... My hand does not paint perfect anything. Yeah. And, um, but I hadn't, I mean, I hadn't really tested them. And so I'm standing in front of this wall of an actual building that people own. And I was like, 
what if this doesn't work? Like, I have no plan B. <laughs> and yeah, then there's people painting murals all around me. My first wall was in this alley where about five other murals were being painted and like amazing work. And I was like, oh my God, this is terrifying. But then I really got into a little groove. And then by the time it was over, I did it for six days straight, like eight to 10 hours a day. I was exhausted and hot, but so I so happy and so fulfilled and so sunburned. And um, I went through like a little depression when I got home because I, it was like this huge high and then you're done. Right. And there are no more walls in my future that I know of yet. Right. So it wasn't like cool getting on a plane and heading off to the next wall. It was just like, Oh no, am I done? So anyway, it was a really cool experience. And yeah, so who knows what's, what's ahead from that. Right something anyway okay last question you can think about this if you need to who out of anyone in the world you can dead or alive works for me would you want to have dinner with it could be a celebrity or an artist Mm -hmm. or a family member or anything I think it would be it's definitely artists but it would be in a hierarchy so first would be Alex Katz Mm -hmm. um, because I'm just absolutely in love with his work and he's 91 and he's making the best work of his career wow. um so to start with him i heard he wasn't really much of a talker so if he didn't want to have dinner i would just say can i have a coffee and can you just work and can i walk around your studio and then probably after that i would say either carrie james marshall oh, or yeah. tracy emmons that would be interesting i know Oh my gosh, those are good. That was like you, that was like you knew I was going to ask that question. You've got you've you've oh, had you've got to, plans. I yeah, I listen to your podcast. I know some of your your uh, <laughs> my go tos. Your go tos, yeah. It was either that or coffee and tea, coffee or tea. Oh, coffee. That would have been a long one because I can't just say coffee because I I do love coffee, but I would have had to start with. Well, I have Irish breakfast with milk at eight and then I have an iced espresso with almond milk at ten. it's very mine is very complicated my <laughs> coffee and tea ritual so how late can you have a coffee can you like oh have... I'm old I so I like two. I have to yeah okay so two coffees a day and one tea in the morning so okay that's good I am one of those people that can I could have an espresso and go to bed oh wow I don't know how that happens yeah no I can't do that more. The the unfortunate part of that is that you know when you really need a coffee to wake up it does nothing either. Oh, you know, that's sad. Yeah. I still drink it. I'm still like, oh, I need a coffee to get you know, but it it's placebo. It literally does nothing. But at least I have a delicious creamy coffee. Right. Yeah. Um, Casey, that's it. Okay, great. How was like that was? I'm so happy that we um, I got to ask all of my questions because you know it's so funny with Instagram because. You think you know, but you don't really know. I had no idea that you had four kids. Right. Now I know all about how the Versos get hung. Mm-hmm. I feel I know about coffee and tea. I, f- I feel pretty <laughs> good about all this. <laughs> and now when I see you on Instagram, I'll, I'll know it all. Yeah, I don't post a lot of my, you know, personal stuff on there. No, you don't, but my I'm gosh, not, you I'm have not a like beautiful a, I'm feed. Not a, I'm not a selfie person. I really do. I mean... I think of myself as like the Instagram is a chance to not only share my own work, but kind of be the art mom to share other people's work that I love. I was going to say you have such a gorgeous feed like um, Sarah Ball you just posted about. I love her uh, so much. If you can get her on the podcast, like I am her biggest fan. And, you know, I see people comment on her feed and say like, oh, I wish I could see these pieces in person. And I'm like, I own two and they are ethereal and they are, I don't know how she does, they're magnificent, and she works from vintage photos, and I, I can't do that. I can't look at something in black and white and add color. And it, right. And so they're definitely, like, influenced by these vintage photos, but they're just all her own. And yeah. Yeah. I and love, you can recognize her work in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Like, there's something, yeah, it's almost like there's lit from within, but not, like, I don't know, they're stunning. And there's no brush strokes. Like, up. this is what I don't get. The surface of them is just breathtaking. And, yeah, I definitely think one to watch. Okay, sure. well, I'll see if I can get her on the yeah. podcast. I've written about her a bunch of times. Um, and I'm pitching a new book, although now I might have to change to your 
book idea because that was pretty My good. <laughs> um, but um, I was going to pitch her as one of the artists in um, one of uh, one of the secret chapters. I'm, I'm not allowed to talk about it yet, but because yeah. who knows, this book might not even get sold to a publisher. Well, she's a mom. Well, she's a Is mom, she? so she could relate to the uh, okay, yeah, okay. The artist mom thing. This might be the well, book. Well, thank you, and thank you so much too for you've shared my stuff multiple times and. It's just great to get my work out in front of different audiences. And, you know, it is a community. And so anytime other artists share other artists' work, it's just greatly appreciated. So I really appreciate you sharing my work. Uh, well, it's kind of selfish because I know that if I post your work, I'm going to get 5 million likes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's you. a win-win situation. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much and good luck with the big... Six-monther, I will be keeping an eye out for um, work-in-progress shots on, on um, Instagram. Yes. And, um, yeah, good luck and, and enjoy what's ahead. Thanks so much. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Well, that, as Mary Berry would say, was scrummy. <laughs> I loved every moment of getting to know Casey a little bit more and getting all of my many, 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 many questions answered. Oh, and a little update since recording this for you, Casey. Sarah Ball very politely said no thank you. Apparently, she really does not like interviews and referred to interviewing her as, quote, getting blood from a stone. <laughs> so, I'm very sorry. I really did try. Thank you so much to Casey for chatting with me. Thanks to Sachi Art and Thrive for supporting this episode. And you know what comes next? Thank you for listening. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then. Still there? I know how you roll. I'm not going to. I don't do that anymore. (laughs) I don't do that anymore because everybody knows my trick. It only worked for the first. I know your trick. (laughs) It only worked for the first month. Wah, wah.